If nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. Similarly, if nothing is obligatory for its own sake, nothing is obligatory at all. This is Men With Chest, the podcast that pursues objective truth, goodness, and beauty, where we go back to the great books that made the West and give warning to the fate that awaits mankind should we not cultivate virtue. Hello and welcome back. We are in chapter two, The Way, in C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Last week we were discussing that man's reason has two components, the ratio and the intellectus, and we were talking about how objective values, which are self-evident truths, are perceived by man's reason via the intellectus. And it is that latter component of man's reason, the intellectus, the part that perceives the self-evident truths of objective values that Lewis called practical reason. And he was pointing out that Gaius and Titius, because they are divorcing objective values from any sort of rationality, they're stripping it away from man's reason. They are left in a position where they have to try and ground these values uh, somewhere else. And we left off with Lewis explaining that the innovator, which is those who are attempting to set up the new values, that they were going to uh, go on a quest, a hunt, to try and find some other ground, even more basic and realistic, in which the new values that they are setting up uh, can be claimed to be derived from. They're trying to find the source that they can then say, well, these values that we are saying are the right ones. Well, they are from this particular thing. And as we'll see here shortly, that particular thing that they are going to claim is instinct. But before we get going, I want to remind you that you should go back to the very first episode, if this is your first episode and you're joining me at this point, because these episodes are tracking through the abolition of man. It's going to make a heck of a lot more sense if you start at the beginning. All right, so Gaius and Titius have debunked the idea that objective values are rational in any way. And so now, Gaius and Titius, as well as any innovators, as Lewis is phrasing them, they are on the hunt for some other ground of value, um, even more basic and realistic. And now we're picking up on page 44 in my copy. This he will probably feel, he meaning the innovator, this he will probably feel that he has found an instinct. So he's found that ground that's even more basic and realistic in instinct. The preservation of society and of the species itself are ends that do not hang on the precarious thread of reason. They are given by instinct. That is why there is no need to argue against the man who does not acknowledge them. So you can't argue with instinct. It's just something that is uh, basic. It is realistic, more realistic, more basic. So it can't be argued with. We have an instinctive urge to preserve our own species. That is why men ought to work for posterity. We have no instinctive urge to keep promises or to respect individual life. That is why scruples of justice and humanity, in fact, the Tao, can be properly swept away when they conflict with our real end, the preservation of the species. 
So the preservation of the species is the key thing here. That is the instinct that is going to be the, uh, the grounds for which values are derived. Continuing, that, again, is why the modern situation permits and demands a new sexual morality. The old taboos serve some real purpose in helping to preserve the species, but contraceptives have modified this, and we can now abandon many of the taboos. For, of course, sexual desire, being instinctive, is to be gratified whenever it does not conflict with the preservation of the species. It looks, in fact, as if an ethics based on instinct will give the innovator all he wants and nothing that he does not want. Okay, so contraceptives have changed the game when it comes to sexual behavior. So to use one real obvious example, if uh, preservation of the species is the instinct that we are you know, dealing with as we are here, and that is the most important thing, the thing that is um, driving all of our value judgments, well, you could imagine that um, sexual intercourse between close relatives, uh, what we call incest, that was considered taboo, something that ought not to be done. And if that is uh, something that hinders the preservation of the species, as we know it does because it it creates uh, children that are unfortunately um, malfunctioning or deformed in some manner, oftentimes, well, that's something that ought not to be done because we need the species to be preserved. But the thing is, when contraceptives come on the field, then now, you know, what does it matter if there's incest taking place? Uh, if the contraceptives are being used, well, so what? There is no offspring at all to be concerned about. And so therefore, on those grounds, uh, sexual behavior with your sibling is fine. It, it just doesn't matter in terms of any sort of uh, moral value judgment because it has nothing to do with preservation of the species because you have contraceptives. Don't need to worry about it. And to use a less obvious example, you could think of adultery. So if contraceptives are in place and therefore uh, you can use them to stop any sort of offspring, then you could have a family, which would be the thing needed for preservation of the species. It's uh, just the basic building unit of civilization, the family. So you could have your own family and have that uh, preservation of the species taking place there. But then because of contraceptives, you could have whatever adulterous relationships. And, and the purpose of those is to gratify your sexual desires. And because it doesn't have any um, outcome in terms of affecting the preservation of the species because you know you got your family unit and that's uh, in place and so you're preserving the species there well so what it doesn't matter there's uh, nothing wrong nothing to say that you should not commit adultery because preservation of the species remember that is the thing from which we are deriving all value judgments all right lewis goes on to write in reality we have not advanced one step I will not insist on the point that instinct is a name for we know not what. To say that migratory birds find their way by instinct is only to say that we do not know how migratory birds find their way. Okay, so he's going to leave that aside. He's not going to deal with uh, the point that instinct is uh, a name for we know not what. Continuing, he says, for I think it is here, uh, instinct, so, for I think it, instinct, is here being used in a fairly definite sense. Uh, 
to mean an unreflective or spontaneous impulse widely felt by the members of a given species. So instinct, think of impulse widely felt, meaning a whole bunch of people feel it. Nearly everybody feels this impulse. In what way does instinct thus conceived help us to find real values? Is it maintained that we must obey instinct, that we cannot do otherwise? But if so, why are green books and the like written? Right? Because it's just instinct. So why are they written? Why this stream of exhortation to drive us where we cannot help going? Because we're just going there because of instinct. Why such praise for those who have submitted to the inevitable? Because it's inevitable since it's based off of instinct. You see how this is all, you know, it, it all goes back to that same conundrum. Or is it maintained that if we do obey instinct, we shall be happy and satisfied? But the very question we are considering was that of facing death, which, so far as the innovator knows, cuts off every possible satisfaction. And if we have an instinctive desire for the good of posterity, then this desire, by the very nature of the case, can never be satisfied, since its aim is achieved, if at all, when we are dead. It looks very much as if the innovator would have to say not that we must obey instinct, nor that it will satisfy us to do so, but that we ought to obey instinct. Uh-oh, there's that ought. That's the, the big bugaboo for the innovator. And that last section there that we just read, Lewis mentioned death, and that's reference to that uh, phrase from an earlier episode where he said, uh, he was quoting Horace, the Roman poet, and he said that it was sweet and fitting to die for one's country. And Lewis is pointing out that if, if that is just instinct, that uh, drives one to, to feel that that impulse, that instinct, then you can't say that you are obeying that in order to be happy and satisfied because you're dead. If you if you follow that out, well, you're dead. So you can't be happy and satisfied because you're just dead. All right, now to that uh, crucial issue of ought. Why ought we do something? That's the big problem here. But why ought we to obey instinct? Is there another instinct of a higher order directing us to do so, and a third of a still higher order directing us to obey it, an infinite regress of instincts? This is presumably impossible, but nothing else will serve. From the statement about psychological fact, I have an impulse to do so and so, we cannot by any ingenuity derive the practical principle, I ought to obey this impulse. So that's the famous is-ought problem. And the point is that there has to be an ought, something from which we then say, well, this is the right thing. We ought to do this. And if you're just uh, basing all this value judgment stuff off of instinct, well, that's just a statement of fact. Uh, as Lewis put it, a statement about psychological fact saying, you know, I have an impulse to do this. So, well, that's a psychological statement of fact. But the problem is you can't make that jump then to say, well, I ought to. You can't derive that ought simply from that psychological statement of fact. Continuing, he says, even if it were true that men had a spontaneous, unreflective impulse to sacrifice their own lives for the preservation of their fellows, it remains a quite separate question whether this is an impulse they should control or one they should indulge, right? There's the ought. Should they control that impulse to 
to die for their fellows, or should they go for it? For even the innovator admits that many impulses, those which conflict with the preservation of the species, have to be controlled. And this admission surely introduces us to a yet more fundamental difficulty. So there lies the problem. The innovator wants to base everything off of instinct, but yet wants to say that some of those instincts, some of those impulses need to be controlled. And so he's um, engaging in that ought problem, that they ought to be controlled. Well, that's a, a big problem on his own view where everything is just instinct. You, you, you're trying to get an ought from an is. Continuing, telling us to obey instinct is like telling us to obey people. People say different things. So do instincts. Our instincts are at war. If it is held that the instinct for preserving the species should always be obeyed at the expense of other instincts, whence do we derive this rule of precedence? That, there it is. That's what I was just uh, pointing out. To listen to that instinct speaking in its own cause and deciding in its own favor would be rather simple-minded. Each instinct, if you listen to it, will claim to be gratified at the expense of all the rest. By the very act of listening to one rather than to others, we have already prejudged the case. If we did not bring to the examination of our instincts a knowledge of their comparative dignity, we could never learn it from them. And that knowledge cannot itself be instinctive. The judge cannot be one of the parties judged, or, if he is, the decision is worthless and there is no ground for placing the preservation of the species above self-preservation or sexual appetite. Okay, so to sum that up, uh, here's the, the problem. We find ourselves in a mire of the whole bunch of instincts, just surrounded by a bunch of instincts. And the thing is, none of those instincts can be said to be better than the rest, because there is nothing beyond or outside of the instincts. All we have are the instincts. So we can't get outside of those than to look down upon them and say, oh, here's a good one. Here's a bad one. No, all we got is the instincts. That's the only game in town. That's the problem here. Lewis goes on to write that the idea that without appealing to any court higher than the instincts themselves, we can yet find grounds for preferring one instinct above its fellows dies very hard. We grasp at useless words. We call it the basic or fundamental, or primal, or deepest instinct. It is of no avail. Either these words conceal a value judgment. Uh-oh, they conceal an ought. Either those words are concealing that ought. So either these words conceal a value judgment passed upon the instinct, and therefore not derivable from it, or else they merely record its felt intensity, the frequency of its operation, and its wide distribution. If the former, meaning either uh, they're concealing the value judgment. So if that's the case, that they're concealing the value judgment, those um, those words that he used, their basic, fundamental, primal, deepest instinct. So if those, the whole attempt to base value upon instinct has been abandoned. If the latter, meaning that those words are only being used to record the felt intensity and the frequency and the wide distribution of the instinct. So if that's the case, that's the latter here. So if that's the case, these observations 
about the quantitative aspects of a psychological event lead to no practical conclusion because they're just statements of fact. They're just describing that psychological fact. It is the old dilemma. Either the premises already concealed an imperative or the conclusion remains merely in the indicative. So uh, imperative is that uh, command. You ought to do this, right? Whereas indicative is a statement of fact. It's the is. So it's it's that is ought problem. So he's saying that the premises, uh, either they're uh, hiding the fact that there's an ought actually in there and we're getting past the instincts, you know, they're concealing it and trying to say that, oh, it's all instincts. But in fact, oh, there's an ought hiding in there or else we're stuck with that statement of fact, the indicative mood where we can't actually say any sort of ought. We can't say that one ought to do this particular thing. All we're left with is describing the psychological facts, period. All right, so thus far, that is our big problem here. We can't get past this is-ought problem if we're trying to base everything off of instinct. We just have no way to stand outside of those instincts and to say that one ought to do this. Lewis writes, Finally, it is worth inquiry whether there is any instinct to care for posterity or preserve the species. I do not discover it in myself, and yet I am a man rather prone to think of remote futurity, a man who can read Mr. Olaf Stapledon with delight. Olaf Stapledon was a author of these science fiction novels that were like far off in the distant future, kind of like an end times even type of science fiction. Much less do I find it easy to believe that the majority of people who have sat opposite me in buses or stood with me in queues feel an unreflective impulse to do anything at all about the species or posterity. Only people educated in a particular way have ever had the idea posterity before their minds at all. It is difficult to assign to instinct our attitude towards an object which exists only for reflective men. What we have by nature is an impulse to preserve our own children and grandchildren, an impulse which grows progressively feebler as the imagination looks forward and finally dies out in the deserts of vast futurity. So the idea here is that we have this impulse to preserve our own children and then grandchildren, but that gets uh, much weaker and weaker as you go, you know, generation by generation, by generation, by generation, and you're, you know, imagining your, your great, 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 and however many times you want to say it, grandkids, 500 years from now, loose point is yeah, you don't really feel the need to um, preserve that posterity. What you feel is that babe right in front of you, that child that was just born, that you have this incredible emotional attachment to no parents who are guided by this instinct would dream for a moment of setting up the claims of their hypothetical descendants, those people way, way down the line, against those of the baby actually crowing and kicking in the room. That, that's what I was just talking about. Those of us who accept the Tao may, perhaps, say that they ought to do so, but that is not open to those who treat instinct as the source of value, right? Because they have rejected the Tao, so even if, uh, you know, Lewis is one of those who would accept the Tao, uh, even if he would say, well, uh, yeah, hypothetically here, I, I could say that, uh, you know, we, we should preserve that, uh, generation way, way 
down the line. Um, and I'm basing that off of the Dow and that we should preserve our species because of the Dow saying that we ought to do that. Well, even if hypothetically he would uh, say so, his point is that Gaius and Titius, the innovators, they can't because they threw out the Dow. They debunked it. Continuing, as we pass from mother love to rational planning for the future, we are passing away from the realm of instinct into that of choice and reflection. And if instinct is the source of value, planning for the future ought to be less respectable and less obligatory than the baby language and cuddling of the fondest mother or the most fatuous nursery anecdotes of a doting father. If we are to base ourselves upon instinct, these things are the substance and care for posterity, the shadow, the huge flickering shadow of the nursery happiness cast upon the screen of the unknown future. I do not say this projection is a bad thing, but then I do not believe that instinct is the ground of value judgments. What is absurd is the claim that your care for posterity finds its justification in instinct and then flout at every turn the only instinct on which it could be supposed to rest, tearing the child almost from the breast to creche and kindergarten in the interest of progress and the coming race. What Lewis is doing here is tearing apart this argument about instincts being the source of value. And he's uh, going to the instincts themselves to do so because he's pointing out that our instinct is for our own immediate offspring, as we just read there. And as I was already talking about, so when you are trying to then claim that uh, preservation of the species, which demands this, this far off looking view into the future, it, when you're claiming that that is the instinct um, from which uh, you know all our value judgments are being derived, then that puts the innovators in this situation where, uh, as he puts it here at the end, what is absurd is the claim that your care for posterity, that far off future, right, finds its justification in instinct and then flout at every turn the only instinct on which it could be supposed to rest, which is the instinct of preservation for the species in terms of that immediate child that is your own child that is right there in front of you, right? That is the instinct that we undeniably feel. And um, he says that they're flouting that instinct of that mother holding that babe. And he says they're tearing the child almost from the breast to creche, which is like nursery. That's a French word. Uh, so tearing them from the breast to crash and kindergarten in the interest of progress and the coming race, meaning these children are being stripped away from that mother who cares about them so deeply and has that impulse to care for them. Uh, because uh, the, these innovators, these guys who they know what's best for the, the race, they know how to bring about progress. So take them away from mom. Uh, because they know how to do it. They are going to instill that child with the right values. And that is just to spit on that impulse uh, itself that they are claiming they're basing everything off of. So Lewis is just pointing out how absolutely absurd this whole thing is if you uh, adopt the view itself and say, okay, yeah, it is all based off of instinct of preservation of the species. Let's see how that looks. And what it looks like is exactly that, the tearing away of the child from breast to creche and kindergarten 
in the interest of progress in the coming race. And of course, this is why all those progressive movements that uh, you could really point out being derived from Hegel and this vision of history progressing into this point where man will achieve this godlike status on earth. And there's you know a whole host of these progressive movements at this time when Lewis is writing this, including the American progressives, the uh, National Socialists, the fascists in Italy, uh, the different uh, sects of socialism in his own home, England, uh, the Bolsheviks, Russia. You got all these different progressive movements, and a thing that is strikingly similar across all of them is the need to get to children when they are very young in order to get them on board with the program so that they will then be able to direct uh, the race towards this progress that they know they uh, have seen the vision of exactly what that is. We can bring it about. We know what it is. We're going to make it happen. Well, how do you do that? You got to get the kids. And if you want a story that demonstrates this, I think better than any other, you can read Huxley's Brave New World, which was written a full decade before Lewis gave the lectures that became Abolition of Man. And in 1943, it was a very real thing that uh, this was taking place, this tearing the child away from the breast to creation kindergarten in the interest of progress in the coming race. That was actually taking place in 1943 and years before. Thus far, Lewis has pointed out the utter vacuity and failure of trying to ground value judgments on instinct. And now he's going to direct us uh, to the place where we can actually have confidence in value judgments being grounded. The truth finally becomes apparent that neither in any operation with factual propositions nor in any appeal to instinct can the innovator find the basis for a system of values. None of the principles he requires are to be found there, but they are all to be found somewhere else. All within the four seas are his brothers, says Confucius, of the Chun Tzu, which is something like the ideal guy, the ideal man. All right, so to repeat that sentence, all within the four seas are his brothers, says Confucius, of the Chun Tzu, the qua gentil, or gentleman, qua gentil is Italian for gentleman, humani nihil am alienum puto, says the Stoic, which means uh, nothing human is alien to me. Then he goes on to say, do as you would be done by, says Jesus. Humanity is to be preserved, says Locke. That's John Locke. So these are all just examples here. And now Lewis is going to point out what he's uh, using all these for. All the practical principles behind the innovator's case for posterity or society or the species are there from time immemorial in the Tao. So all those uh, different phrases that I just quoted, those are examples of the Tao but they are nowhere else unless you accept these without question as being to the world of action what axioms are to the world of theory you can have no practical principles whatever practical principles remember practical reason same kind of idea here that practical uh, reason that was the intellectus the idea of the self-evident truths of objective value being perceived by man's reason you cannot reach them as conclusions. 
the practical principles. You cannot reach them as conclusions right there. They're not part of the ratio part of man's reason. You don't follow a logical argument to get to them. You perceive them because they are self-evident. So you cannot reach them as conclusions. They are premises. You may, since they can give no reason for themselves of a kind to silence Gaius and Titius, regard them as sentiments. But then you must give up contrasting real or rational value with sentimental value. All value will be sentimental. And you must confess, on pain of abandoning every value, that all sentiment is not merely subjective. So to think that all sentiment is merely subjective is really just a remarkable blind leap of faith because it is to reject first principles. Continuing, you may, on the other hand, regard them as rational, nay, as rationality itself, as things so obviously reasonable that they neither demand nor admit proof. But then you must allow that reason can be practical. Ah, there it is, practical reason. That an ought must not be dismissed because it cannot produce some is as its credential. If nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. Similarly, if nothing is obligatory for its own sake, nothing is obligatory at all. And that is the line I opened this episode with. And that is the statement of the first principles. For something to be self-evident means that the to be technical, it's the idea that the predicate is contained in the object. So to, to say, give a sentence here, to say that man is a rational animal, uh, you have man, the object, and the predicate is rational animal. And when you say those things, you could reverse the order. It doesn't matter. You could say rational animal is man. Man is rational animal. The point is that that predicate, rational animal, is contained in the object man. When you say one, you say the other. When you say the other, you mean the one. The, the, they can be flipped. They are both saying the same thing. That is the idea of self-evidence. And that is explained by Aquinas. Uh, he might even use that rational animal one. I, that's probably where I heard it. But um, y you get the point that when you say man, what you mean is rational animal. If you say rational animal, what you mean is man. And of course, the point of me opening the episode with that line and uh, now finishing our reading for today with that line is that to reject first principles puts one in this infinite regress of skepticism where we literally cannot know anything. If there is nothing self-evident, if there is no self-evident first principles, then nothing can be proved because we have nothing from which we can derive anything else. We have no foundation, no starting block, nothing from which we can then build up from. It's all skepticism. And on that note, I now want to jump into a fascinating argument that Lewis himself uh, begins to formulate in a book called Miracles. And uh, don't be misled by that title. It's not talking about miracles as you might be thinking it's talking about. It's about this idea of uh, naturalism, which is this worldview that there is no such thing as God and nothing like God. Uh, all we have is the physical material world around us. Nothing stands outside or beyond or, you know, super, you know, something that is past that. There's no super nature, no supernaturalism. There is only the natural naturalism. 
And Lewis is pointing out that if that is the case, if naturalism is in fact true, then that puts us in this very precarious situation where we can't trust our our mental capabilities, our cognitive faculties, our ability to reason, to try and um, acquire truths about the world, because those uh, reasoning faculties, the cognitive faculties, the uh, you know mental capabilities, all that stuff is based off of survivability, not on getting at the truth. And I'm actually going to go into Alvin Plantiga's argument uh, to explore this idea. And Plantiga is a modern philosopher who has taken uh, what Lewis first developed in miracles, you know, something like 80 years ago, and has developed it to a great deal of sophistication. And he calls his argument the evolutionary argument against naturalism. And I want to get into this a bit because this ties in so well with this idea of instinct as being the source of value judgments. And uh, Plantinga makes his case in a book called Where the Conflict Really Lies. And that title itself is reference to where Plantinga points out the real conflict is. And the real conflict, he points out, is not between uh, Christianity and science, the physical sciences, as we have so often been misled to believe is the case. Instead, the real conflict here is between the physical sciences and the religion of naturalism. All right, so Plantinga's argument is this. Suppose that naturalism is true, and also suppose that evolution is true. And before we go farther, I want to explain what he means by evolution there. He's using it there to refer to the um, process by which a random mutation for a particular species, um, it occurs randomly, meaning irrespective of you know, whatever sort of outcome that may produce for the species itself. It may be beneficial or it may be deleterious. So there's a random mutation that occurs. And then the mutation that is beneficial for the species is naturally selected and kept going on in future generations of that species. Whereas the one that was deleterious, because it's deleterious, it just means that it dies out since it didn't have any uh, benefit to uh, the survivability of that species. Okay, so he's he's using that um, common explanation of evolution. And Plantinga is using evolution here, not just in the narrow sense, but also in the wide or broad sense. So the narrow sense is the thing that we actually see taking place around us where a particular species will have a particular adaptation that allows it to survive better. And therefore, then the, the species ends up adapting and um, evolving from where it was previously in some sort of minor fashion, in a way that helps it to survive. He's uh, not just referencing that, that narrow sense, but also the wide or broad sense, which would be that the natural selection process is capable of explaining all the biological diversity that we see upon the planet. Okay. So those are the two fundamental planks of the argument. Plank one, naturalism is true. Plank two, evolution in that broad sense, not just that narrow sense, is also true. Okay, so we have those two things in place. Then Plantinga goes on to point out that if that is so, if naturalism is true and therefore uh, evolution in that broad sense is true, then that means that 
um, man's cognitive faculties, his reasoning capabilities, they are produced by a random mutation that then was naturally selected by the species in order to uh, produce some sort of benefit to the species because the, the ones that are deleterious to the species die out, whereas the ones that are beneficial to the species are naturally selected and therefore passed on. So man's cognitive faculties are produced by the evolutionary process. But then that puts us in a very odd situation where we cannot actually trust our cognitive faculties to arrive us at discovering truth because they were naturally selected based off of their survivability value, not based off of their truth acquiring value. What, what is important with natural selection is the survivability of the species, not that the species is able to discover truth. So then we're in a situation where, okay, we, we can't know if we're actually discovering truth or not because our cognitive faculties themselves are produced by this process, which is aimed at survivability, not at discovering truth. But then that puts us in a situation where we can't know if naturalism and evolution are true because those are beliefs that we hold from our cognitive faculties producing those beliefs. And our cognitive faculties are based off of this survivability value, not off of truth. So therefore we've just undermined our ability to even say that naturalism and evolution is true. So it, it's a self-defeating thing. So he points out that if naturalism and evolution is believed by someone, then they cannot rationally affirm them because they've just undercut any sort of cognitive basis by which they can say that those beliefs themselves are true. So the gist is that we cannot have any sort of confidence that our cognitive faculties are reliable in getting us at discovering the truth if naturalism and evolution are true because they undercut our basis for having any sort of confidence in our cognitive faculties since our cognitive faculties are simply aimed at survivability and not at discovering truth. And in fact, this is something that Darwin himself was very concerned about. Darwin once wrote that with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals are of any value or at all trustworthy. That's exactly the, the same point. How can we have any confidence that they are trustworthy when they are simply produced by this process, which its only aim is survivability. That's it. That's the only game in town. And this ties in perfectly with this instinct of preservation of the species. That is the same thing. To preserve the species is exactly what natural selection is about. And in a in a uh, narrow sense, we see that, as I explained, you you see the adaptations of a particular species that allow it to survive. And we, we see that happen in that narrow sense. But when you switch that over to that broad sense to say that all our biological diversity on our planet, including mankind and his cognitive faculties, are produced by this survivability, by this preservation of the species instinct then that's when we have these serious problems of not having any sort of confidence or reliability in our cognitive faculties. 
So this is just further evidence of the absurdity of basing value judgments off of that instinct to preserve the species. Not only is it absurd because of uh, what we already saw from the evolution of man, whereby Lewis explained that uh, our instinct is to preserve the species in the sense of that little baby that is yours right in front of you and not the preservation of the species as directed by the experts who know what society ought to be and know how to bring it about. They have the esoteric insight and they can make it happen. And so uh, then the mother who has the, the child and feels that impulse to care and protect that child, uh, they can take that baby away from her in order to give it the proper training, the proper values so that it will be uh, a team player. It will participate in this glorious transformation of our society to exactly what they know it needs to be in order to preserve the species 500 years from now. Okay. So not only is it absurd to base our value judgments off of this preservation of the species idea because of that reason I just gave, but it is also absurd because if we follow that argument by Planiga of naturalism and evolution being true, then we are in a position where we can't rely on our cognitive faculties to arrive us at truth. So therefore it is absurd or even irrational to hold to the belief that naturalism and evolution are true. And therefore the belief that preservation of the species is the thing from which we can ground our value judgments, what the innovators were searching for in their hunt to find a more basic and more realistic grounds from which they could say our value judgments are derived. So if we try to do what the innovators are doing, then we are simply in that position where we have to just be skeptical of everything. It's a infinite regress of skepticism. And that's summed up beautifully in the line I open this episode with. If nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. Before closing this episode, I want to point out where you can find out more about this fascinating stuff about uh, natural selection and the limits of natural selection, what it can explain and what it can't explain. Uh, because it, in terms of us uh, laymen who are not academics in this field of evolutionary biology, it seems like we are just totally clueless about what the academic field actually uh, says about this issue. So if you want to look into this yourself, the work of Michael Behe is a great place to start. Uh, he's someone who points out the limits of natural selection, point out that it can explain a whole host of things, and he'll describe what those things are, but then point out, okay, it can't explain these things. And he's somebody who is a Christian who even would affirm the idea of there being a universal common ancestor. And then he would just point out that natural selection is able to give us an account for a very small amount of the biological diversity we see upon our planet. But there's a whole bunch of that biological diversity we see that it has utterly no hope at all of being able to explain. And so then some other explanatory mechanism is needed if we honestly actually want to discover how all the biological diversity on the planet came about. In his book, The Edge of Evolution, 
is a good starting point if you want to dive into this. I'm going to draw us to a close there. Next week, we'll see a better grounding for objective values than this preservation of the species instinct that we dealt with this week. If you like the show, please leave me a five-star rating on Apple. And if you have time, you could leave me a review and feel free to send me a question. I have a Twitter up for the show. It's at men W chests as a King governs by his executive. So reason and man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element, the chest magnanimity sentiment. These are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it is by this middle element that man is man for by his intellect, he is mere spirit and by his appetite, mere animal. See you next week. Thank you.